0: All right, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. Um, We have a great guest on our show. We had a great conversation. Um, The guest we had was Katie Lane. She is from Thrive Alcohol Recovery. We were talking about the Sinclair Method for Alcohol Use Disorder. This is one of the things that I was really looking forward to talking about. It's one of the things that I really love. So I'll give a little introduction, her bio, and then we'll jump on into the conversation. Katie Lane struggled with alcohol use disorder for nearly 10 years until she stumbled upon a revolutionary science-based treatment that fixes alcohol addiction neurologically. It's called the Sinclair Method. Throughout this treatment, Katie was able to gradually reduce her drinking from one to two bottles of wine most nights to one to two glasses of wine per month. She said she watched herself become truly empowered over alcohol. Today, Katie is accidentally alcohol-free as she unexpectedly lost interest in drinking. Thanks to this treatment. Now Katie advocates for and supports others through this wildly effective yet unknown treatment for alcohol use disorder. So we had this great conversation talking about this point exactly. One of the things that I would say is that there is a financial disclosure, is that there is a referral link, there is an affiliate link in my descriptions for Thrive Alcohol Recovery, we'll put those in there. So there is that, but you know what I always kind of say with this is that I wouldn't have signed on and done any of this stuff if I didn't believe in the system of it, if I didn't have patients who've benefited from that, from the Sinclair method as a whole. So I truly believe in it. Again, if you're interested in the course after you're, after you listen to this, check it out via the link and all of uh, the descriptions and hope you guys enjoy and learn something from this conversation. <laughs> all right everybody welcome back i'm very 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 excited to be having katie lane on our program to talk about the sinclair method today um so a little brief introduction before i let katie introduce herself when i was talking about sinclair method a few years ago and i'd be out in the community and i was really being like you know i need to have some other voice and kind of doing like these presentations and stuff so I actually came across her YouTube channel many years ago. Um, and I, I saw, I used one of her videos to really explain what the Sinclair method was in this presentation. So a couple of, you know, a little few years later, a little while ago, um, we kind of linked up and were able to kind of connect and, and kind of go from there. So again, I've been very, very excited to talk about the Sinclair method. Um, so I'll let her introduce herself first and then we'll kind of go from there.
1: Yeah, that is so cool to hear because um, I think you saw my video first and then I came across your brilliant skit on TikTok about the Sinclair Method, I don't know, maybe almost a year ago. And, um, you know, knowing that you're a triple board certified psychiatrist and in this space to see you talking about this treatment, because I honestly feel like... Um, it's one of those things that, that feels like a a secret in a lot of ways. Um, I've, you know, I did this treatment myself and have been in, in the space for five years now. So, um, anyway, just to see you advocating for it as an alternative treatment for problem drinking was like really encouraging to see. So thank you for being your own advocate for it as well.
0: Yeah, of course. Of course. So tell us about yourself, Katie, tell us about who you are and all that kind of stuff, a little background stuff.
1: Sure. Yeah. So um, hello everybody. Wonderful to be here. Um, My name is Katie. I struggled with alcohol use disorder for nearly 10 years. Um, And I use the term alcohol use disorder because it's more of the appropriate clinical term today and it doesn't come with the really heavy stigma of terms like alcoholic. And so I'll use that term um, throughout this, this conversation, I'm sure. Uh, but meaning by that, you know, I just really struggled with controlling my alcohol use for, for nearly a decade. And it was something that started in my early 20s and um, something that, you know, I, I, at the time I just thought this was a phase. This is something people my age are supposed to do. You know, we're supposed to go out to bars and party and have fun. And, you know, once my career took off and I got a little bit older, I would, you know, uh, pull it back a little bit. Uh, but what happened for me was after a few years of of partying really, really hard, I did try to take a break. I tried to take seven days off because um, I remember sitting there one day and just realizing, like, I don't remember the last day I went without drinking. It had been more than a year, and I couldn't even remember when it was. Like, it was probably way more than a year. So that scared me a little bit, and I was like, okay, I'm just going to take a, you know, seven-day break and let my body kind of rest and heal Um, But what I found during that seven days was that it was actually really, really difficult to do. It was not just as simple as don't drink. Um, And the reason for that is because my mind was obsessively thinking about the drinking. Um, I was someone who I'd kind of work a nine to five job. And then as soon as I'd get off work, I'd go home and start drinking, like binge drinking until, you know, I passed out essentially. And I did that pretty much seven days a week, day drinking on the weekends. It was just like a seven day a week thing. Whenever I could drink, I would drink. So during the seven day period, um, every night I'd get home from work and just be like, you know, we use the term white knuckling. I'd be like, oh my gosh, I want to drink so bad, but I'm forcing myself not to. And um, it's kind of like, you know, when you're fasting and you're starving, you're like, all I want to do is eat. All you can think about is eating. And that's really what it felt like. um, Not allowing myself to drink, you know, like an itch that I couldn't scratch. but I made it through that seven days. I remember taking NyQuil most nights just to go to bed by like seven or eight to kind of get through that witching hour. Uh, but by day eight, I was uh, really excited to drink again and kind of back at it again. And um, really struggled in this cycle of you know binge drinking, heavy drinking, and trying to like pull it back with alcohol free challenges and different treatment programs to um, try to moderate or quit drinking. But nothing, nothing was working. And what happened for me is it just seemed to be uh, getting, getting worse with each passing year. Um, and, um, you know, I I was always hungry for an answer, always looking for alternative treatments or, you know, ways to overcome this. And that, um, one hungover Sunday morning, I was honestly like thinking, well, maybe if like I could hit my rock bottom, whatever that means, maybe I could, you know, maybe I could quit. And I was honestly like, okay, like maybe, you know, if I almost got a DUI, I was like, maybe if something like that happens, I can quit. Um, But that same morning i uh stumbled upon a tedx talk about the sinclair method which has now had millions of views um and i learned about it and i was like no way this seems too good to be true which we'll talk more about why that is um and within a few months i started on on that treatment
0: yeah and i think that's a really interesting point like you brought up the whole um rock bottom point and you know when it's kind of this idea when we talk about alcohol use disorder or any kind of substance use disorder. You know, people who are in treatment, or people who are—I want to say, from my point of view, the doctor' point of view, right? The you know, the the main thing that they're like, well, somebody needs to hit their rock bottom. Once they hit their rock bottom, then everything will be all good. And it's such a huge myth, right? Because yeah. for a lot of people, there is no rock bottom, right? right? Rock bottom—I mean, could be death, um, but like Thanks. you know, you don't want to get to that point where it's like it's it's too late at that point, right? So,
1: yeah. And that it keeps getting moved further and further out, the goalpost of what a rock bottom is. It's like, I literally got pulled over right before that moment and almost got a DUI for some reason. I didn't, like, I don't know why. But I was like, oh, if I ever got pulled over, maybe that would scare me enough. But I was out drinking and driving again a couple weeks later. You know, it's not, um, yeah, there's no, you know, rock bottom that someone hits to to cause them to change. I mean, it's different from person to person, I should say.
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I think that's really... a interesting thing too because or a good point to kind of bring up is that it is really individualized right everybody has their own kind of story and you know I I, I'm over here living in Loudoun County Virginia right next to Fairfax so these are like the number one and two richest counties in America I I bring that up and I say like we a lot of my patients who have you know similar stories backgrounds to you right we have like people who are housewives or people who are or a lot of times it's again like, like a lot of women who work and then they're like, oh, I'm drinking a bottle of wine um, every night, drinking two bottles of wine or even the guy's the same kind of thing. You know, it's the same story and you wouldn't tell from it. You wouldn't be able to tell from the outside, right? They're not what we see in like the movies and all this TV shows and stuff where it's like people who are working functional jobs, their parents, and then they're having a bottle or two of wine and then they wake up in the morning and they do it again.
1: That's such an important point, and I see that over and over again, like, you know, I think with alcohol use disorder, it does not discriminate whatsoever, and in fact, like, I tend to see more people who have, like, from the outside world, kind of like you're saying, oh, maybe they have everything together, and they look, you know, successful, and like, they have that perfect picture, perfect life, or whatever, but oftentimes, it's those people who are struggling with alcohol, and it's such a, a secret, and so there's so much shame around it and it just continues to isolate them more because you know i never knock aa my dad is sober through aa i think it's an incredible program for some people but i know for me one of the biggest things that never worked for me in that program was the fact that i had to call myself an alcoholic like hi, I'm Katie, I'm an alcoholic. And I know that works for some people. I've known people who are like, I'm 30 years sober, I'm an alcoholic, you know, and that works for them. Okay, but for me, I was like, I can't put that label on myself, it would be such a burden. And in some ways, I felt like it was justifying my drinking. Well, if I'm an alcoholic, then I might as well just drink like, you know, the rest of the people in my family do or the rest of my friends do. So, um, yeah, that's another reason why I'm so grateful that there are alternative treatments for the folks who, you know, that type of, strict type of program you know doesn't work for
0: yeah talking about that like a what were some of the other things i mean i know you you said you kind of stumbled upon like the tedx talk by what was her name, claudia christian i think her name right yeah and that's the one that kind of brings everybody into it um but what were some of the other things that you had kind of tried or other ways you had kind of reduced you talked about kind of like setting yourself up or trying to have some of these um periods of days but were there any other programs i know you said aa but like maybe some other ones too
1: Um, You know, the strategies I took a lot of the time for my drinking was doing personal development because I felt like, you know, if I was whole enough or at peace enough or enlightened enough, then I wouldn't have this issue. And ironically, for a period of time, a couple of years, I worked in an institute that offers these types of like self improvement workshops and personal development workshops and my drinking got so so bad there and the culture at this place was really heavy alcohol use so super conflicting for me as well to see people who were really into personal development but then they were polishing off like a couple bottles of wine every night um so i was someone who i would always be enrolling in courses workshops doing cleanses um i did go to aa a few times and it just wasn't for me but i would consume aa content like all of the inspiring talks online um, I did try to go to therapy and talk my way through it and understand the the trauma that may be, you know, causing it. Um, and I would just do, you know, like there's so many online communities and things now. So I would plug into like a 30 day alcohol free challenge or, um, you know, just various places where people would try to promote mindful or moderate drinking. There's these like little communities online everywhere. Um, but to be honest, you uh, nothing would work long-term. I might feel really motivated and see success in the first week or the first couple weeks, um, but then it would get difficult because the craving for alcohol would kick in and it was like my logical brain would just shut off and my compulsion to drink and to drink to excess would become something that I I really couldn't control anymore to where it was like, screw it. I need to go get a drink and I need to go get it now. And sometimes that would be at lunchtime at work. I'd be like sneaking drinks at my desk. And I like think back on that now. I'm like, what was I doing? But it was like, I'd be trying to take a break or something. And then, um, the urge would be so strong that I would literally drink while at work and, you know, the risks that come with that. So I did try a lot of different things for both mindful, moderate drinking, as well as taking breaks and trying to, you know, find the, um, you know the answer within me as to why this problem was happening um, but what i've since learned is that it really has to do a lot of you know a lot of time with the fact that the brain has been changed and um, it's wired to crave alcohol and basically be obsessed with alcohol and so no matter what i was doing on the outside that part of my brain was kind of overpowering um, all my willpower and effort
0: yeah it's 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 really hard because there's i mean there's all these different ways to approach it um and you know we we know that from people who work in the field like you know this the addiction aspect of it the use disorder aspect of it is super super difficult and you can't just like turn it off so yeah.
1: if only. you came across like
0: the TEDx talk what was the big thing to you that was like the most appealing so let's let's jump into that then so learning about the Sinclair method what was the thing that appealed to you the most
1: Yes. And for those who haven't seen it, it's a TEDx talk. You can find it on YouTube. It's called How I Overcame Alcoholism by Claudia Christian. So you can search it. Um, I think the most appealing thing to me in that and what spoke to me the most was her personal testimony of how she struggled with alcohol, how she tried all of these different detoxes and treatments to try to get it under control. But that nagging part of her brain, that was really... uh, in a sense, like giving her this compulsion to to drink or causing her to be really self-destructive and that, um, you know, she wasn't a bad person. She had, she's a successful actress and has all of these things going on in her life, yet she was destroying herself with alcohol. And she would, um, one example that always stuck out to me, which I so related to, she was like, You know, I'd be at a party and when everyone's switching from like wine to coffee, I would still be like quaffing drinks. And that was so me. Like in social settings, that's when I would notice that my drinking was, uh, you know, I was drinking a lot more than most people around me. You know, of course I had my drinking friends where we like to drink together, but if I'd be at a social function and people are literally sipping their drinks or like she said, switching to coffee and okay, we're done with the alcohol. I'd be like, why would we be done with alcohol? Um, so just hearing someone else really struggle with controlling alcohol, but not because she's an alcoholic or because she's has these character flaws or defects, but because of what's happening in the brain when we develop it and it becomes this, um, it's no longer something we can use logic and reason to get away from. And I think that was one of the biggest eye openers for me because I'd wake up with that horrible hangover so often and be like, Why do I keep doing this? Like, why can't I just control my drinking? Like, I was planning to have two drinks, and I had two bottles again. Why do I keep doing this? And that's that logical part of us that wants to get it under control, but the more powerful part of our brain is really the one driving the disorder.
0: Yeah, I know we're we're talking about this in Claremont. That so I know for people who may not be aware of it or what it is, can you tell us about it from what kind of like what you picked up early on, and then how you kind of. Adapted and what the experiences were for you.
1: Absolutely. So, um, yeah, so the Sinclair Method, the reason it's called that, by the way, is that it's named after the physician who kind of did the research and discovered this approach to overcome alcohol use disorder that didn't involve abstinence. Um, And for a lot of people, that's, like, mind-blowing in and of itself because for so long we've been told, like, if you have a problem with alcohol, your first step is, like, to quit drinking. You have to stop doing the substance. Uh, But he, being the brilliant man he was, discovered this way to allow people to continue to drink, which is honestly something that feels so natural when you're dependent on alcohol. It's, like, the thought of giving it up oftentimes is really terrifying. And the thought of giving it up forever is, like, Wait, what? I can never drink again? So, the Sinclair method is named after this guy who did research um, 30 years ago in Finland. Um, and what he discovered is that alcohol use disorder is essentially a learned behavior in the brain um, that is really learned over time through repeated drinking. You know, a lot of people, myself included, don't set out to develop this dependence on alcohol. But, you know, kind of maybe naively or innocently, it's like, oh, yeah, we drink with friends on Friday, Saturday, throughout the week. And then over time, our brain just learns this pattern of disordered drinking. And so what he uh, discovered through his research is that because it's a learned behavior in the brain, it can actually be unlearned over time uh, by following his protocol called the Sinclair Method, which involves using... A medication which is an opiate blocker medication not to be confused with an opiate uh, but this opiate blocker essentially um, blocks the euphoric effects or the endorphins from alcohol and when someone drinks paired with that medication over time usually many many months uh, they unlearn this pattern and behavior of disorder drinking and for a lot of people myself included what that means is They might still continue to drink but they have an off switch so they have a couple drinks and they don't want more than that Uh, they have alcohol free days that are much easier and kind of happen without you know much effort or thought um and they're not thinking about alcohol anymore like i I mentioned i was just like always thinking about my drinking like at 11 a.m every day i'd be like can't wait to get home and open that bottle of wine and just like this preoccupation with with thinking that gradually fades away. And, you know, a lot of people confuse this medication with antabuse, it's definitely not antabuse, which is a medication that makes you deathly ill if you drink on it. Um, naltrexone, it, it's really a medication that works gradually over time. Like the first time some, when people take it, they usually don't really notice that big of a difference, but it's these changes that kind of accumulate over time where someone just sees themselves experience more control in their relationship with alcohol.
0: Yeah, and I think it's it's really eye opening from my point of view, and kind of like the things that you're you're kind of bringing up. So from, from from again, like the doctor provider's point of view, there was always this kind of the way that we were taught was like send your people, send your alcoholics, send your drunks to AA and give them an abuse, right? And that's how you get them to stop drinking. And now, you know, and I see these people. We we're working. You know, my first substance abuse rotation was in at the VA. You know, with this population of people. And it didn't work, right? No surprise. None of this stuff worked. And I think we see this, like the research has shown this, that like I think it's like over 90% of people in AA will go back to drinking, right? So it's it doesn't work, right? And, and But this is what's being taught like in medical schools and residency programs is like send them to AA and, and give them a pill that'll like if, you know, if they get a DUI that now they have to like take this pill that's going to make them puke. If they drink and like, you know, the, the what's it called? Aversion therapy essentially, right? You try to put a, the pepper on a kid's thumb to get them to stop sucking their thumb. And that's what we're going to try to do for, for grown adults. Like, no, it, it doesn't do the job. So kind of what you're describing and, you know, when you tell somebody this, when you have people, when my patients come to me and they're like, I've come across this, I don't want to give up drinking, right? I, I want to be able to have a drink. I want to be able to go out. You know, with the girls or with the guys on the on night Friday night, and like have one or two beers with them, or have a couple glasses of wine, and then call it a day, right? So that off switch, kind of what you are saying. I think that's been the biggest, hugest kind of thing, right? And, and that goes into that whole harm reduction kind of idea. of it was like alcohol itself is not like this terrible evil thing, right? Nothing is evil or bad. It's just like the problems that come along with it. Right? It's the problems that come with the alcohol the problems that come along with any other substance right so that's what we're trying to eliminate and it's and again like i always tell people when i'm patients wise is like this isn't gonna get you to like never drink again unless that's what you're kind of going for that we can work to that point but at the same time like we're trying to reduce the problem drinking the problem behaviors and that's what we're that's what the goal of treatment is
1: Absolutely. And it's so interesting to hear your perspective as a physician because I do and there was even just a New York Times article recently about Naltrexone and one of the physicians they interviewed, I think her name was Dr. Katie Wickowitz, but she mentioned and she's quoted in there saying there's this disconnect between how the medication works and how prescribers are using it or actually not using it. And so it's it's really interesting. And I've been to a number of addiction conferences and met with a number of physicians in this field and what i found is the mindset is still very much that abstinence-based. Like you were saying, you know, like, no, you have to quit drinking. We're not even going to allow you to use this harm reduction or drink reduction approach. And so I've kind of, uh, that was actually around the time I saw your video, I had gotten back from a conference and I was a little bit defeated because I was like, man, like they're really not open to this in, in this industry. But I know that there are physicians out there like yourself that, that are open to it. And so it's really great to, to hear that. And yeah, you know, I'd say, In our program and what I've seen over the years is about 75% of people go on this treatment with a goal to moderate and the other 25% would like to quit drinking eventually, but they want to do it through this treatment so they're not tortured by alcohol cravings and white knuckling it and, you know, forcing themselves not to drink. So it's really great because it empowers the individual and gives them the choice as opposed to prescribing this, you know, sometimes punitive treatment on them like antabuse or, you know, just locking them away in a rehab where it's not that natural environment for them.
0: Yeah. I I mean, I agree. Right. It's, it is one of those things that even when I come with certain family members who come on board. Right. So when I have patients who come and then they have family, a spouse, someone who's like, Oh, I'm going to, I'm going to make you get help for this. They say to me, they're like, so you're trying to get my husband most often or my spouse to like stop drinking, but you're going to tell him to drink. Um, And that's your kind of prescription out the door. And you get that kind of shock that comes from like the partners or from whoever brings them in the family members. How was that kind of like, I guess, maybe with you on your side, what have you kind of come across with that?
1: Yeah, you know, um, and honestly, for me, I started the treatment and did it for about a month or two before I even told everyone because I realized how insane it sounded. And I just didn't want to have to face the pushback, especially if I was like, well, I don't know for sure if this will work for me. Um, But I do see that a lot with concerned loved ones, especially if they've never experienced anything like an alcohol use disorder and they don't have a compulsory you know, use disorder or addiction to anything. So it's really hard for them to even relate. And, and that's a good thing to be honest because they haven't struggled with it, but it does make it hard for them to even understand. But, you know, if you break it down to really the basic science of the method and just understanding that, hey, you know, by taking this medication beforehand, it's gonna be dampening the reward that your loved one is gonna get when they drink. And so over time, if they're doing this behavior and not getting that same reward, um, it's going to be something they're going to want to do less often, and that's true for anything in life. You know, a common example I use is like, if a restaurant that I love gets new ownership and the food just gradually goes downhill, I'm not going to go there very often, you know, and not going to go because it's not as enjoyable or pleasurable. So, I think for loved ones to really understand just the very basic science of how an is working following this treatment, it can help them to be more on board with it but you know it still can be challenging because oftentimes they just want their loved one to quit drinking or you know they don't want the alcohol in the house anymore so when that's the case there are still challenges but um yeah education is is really helpful obviously
0: i'm always like reminded of like my first first experience with it um with a patient and you know this is a guy who would like drive back home from work and stop off at the bar and, and drink like 20 something drinks. And you know, the Naltrex, We started the Naltrexone, and he said almost immediately it had an effect. It cut the drinking down to like eight drinks, right? So a third of what he was drinking. And I remember his spouse like getting emails still for I think from the from the wife being like, he's he's drinking eight beers. Like you're, what you're doing is not working. Is and I was like, no, no, no. Like understand that going from 24 to eight is huge. And I think part of it was. I don't think she was aware of like the 24 originally. Right. And it's one of those things is that I think people don't, you know, they, they'll lie to each other. Right. They lie to the loved ones, their partners, whoever else, about like how much that drinking was, right. How, how, what that initial number was. So how important is that? I know that's one of the big things with like the Sinclair method is like the tracking, right. And the, and the accountability and the reliability of all that. So Talk about some of that, maybe some of the logistics of how somebody progresses through it over time.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, And I think it's important, I'll just say first, for people to have realistic expectations for this treatment. Um, I know you work with a lot of different medications for different things people have, but I do see sometimes people, whether it's themselves or their loved ones, have maybe unrealistic expectations of how this is going to work. Like it's just going to be this magic pill that in the first week you're going to be sober, you know. Um, And that's not usually how it works. Like your client, you know, a lot of people do see, you know, within the first 30 days, they might see a 30 to 50% reduction in their drinking. That's a common trend we see. Um, But then it can go up and down from there for a while because of, the habits around drinking and the fact that alcohol is such a quick and effective coping tool for a lot of people. And there's oftentimes, you know, our lives are very intertwined with our drinking, so it takes time to change the the behaviors around it. Um, So we typically tell people to give this treatment a year, but what's going to be happening is they're going to see these gradual changes in their drinking along the way. And some people might get to their goal in three months, and that's a really you know exciting place to be. Others might take six, others might take two or three years, but they're still seeing that massive reduction in their drinking, and they're just gradually working on the habit piece. Um, but tracking is really helpful, and to be honest, I really struggled with tracking in the beginning of the treatment for myself, and I see this happen with others also. Uh, Because I didn't want to face the number, like I was terrified to actually know how much I was actually drinking. But honestly, that was something I regret not doing because I would love to look back on that data now. Um, But tracking is really helpful because uh, oftentimes on this method, as I've mentioned, the the changes are kind of gradual and progressive. So sometimes people will reach out to me and be like, oh, I've been on it for three months and it's not doing anything. I'm not seeing any change. But if they've been tracking or we can look back to where they started, usually they did see a pretty significant drop in the beginning and they'll notice, oh, you know, I'm not thinking about alcohol all day or I used to start drinking at noon. Now I'm drinking at five or, you know, oh, I guess I do drink a little bit more slowly than I used to. Like it takes me an hour to finish a glass of wine instead of 30 minutes. And so these are the types of changes people see on this method. And oftentimes what I see is that, um, they can be things that can be easy to ignore or dismiss as like a placebo effect. Like if someone's drinking more slowly, it's like easy to look over that and not really count it as a win. Um, But that's really how the method works. It's like these gradual changes over time that really add up to a different relationship with alcohol in a matter of, you know, six, nine, 12 months for most people.
0: Yeah. You'd kind of alluded to it a little bit before. But, and, and I see this a lot of time with my patients as well as like when we, we do get to that point and we do reduce the alcohol that's, that they're drinking and, and get that number down. And the thing that comes up, one of the problems per se that comes up is like now the reason why the person was drinking comes back to light, right? Whether it was for depression stuff, anxiety stuff, trauma stuff work stuff who knows whatever it is that stuff comes back how do we deal with that or what what do we say to people and i I always you know i've started to do this now where i've started to like warn everybody now i was like hey we'll we'll get drinking down no problem but what happens when the drinking is gone what do we do then
1: yes oh my gosh and i think that's probably one of the biggest challenges i see with people that keeps them stuck on the method, or maybe causes them to stop taking the medicine, or maybe causes them to just, you know, ignore the medicine, and we and say they drink through it, where the medicine is telling them to stop drinking, but they force themselves to drink anyway to kind of get drunk or escape. Um, and that is really challenging. And honestly, it was something that humbled me on my Sinclair Method journey because I started this treatment kind of like, oh, I, you know, I drink too much. I need to cut back, and this pill will help me. But a few months in, just like you said, those things of why I was drinking started to surface. Um, memories of things that I had kind of forgotten about and just numbed out every day uh, were starting to surface. Um, I was starting to feel uncomfortable emotions, you know, just like anger and frustration or sadness and everyday emotions that we can feel. But when you're so conditioned to reaching for alcohol to kind of like quickly get rid of it. Um, It's a process of I often tell people you've got to strengthen your coping muscle like it's like going to the gym You know you do it once and you're not really gonna see much, but if you do it over and over again it gets easier and easier, but for people to Realize that, you know, I think it's a good thing that you're warning them that, that those things do happen as we get rid of the alcohol because the alcohol is numbing us and kind of clouding us a lot and so as we drink less, that kind of lifts, and a lot of people start to feel emotions they haven't felt in a while. Those memories start to surface, and so um, plugging into some type of support or therapy, or you know, just taking it slow, giving yourself some grace. And you know, I'm really big on self-care because we have been self-destructive with alcohol for so long that you know we have to learn how to care for ourselves and re-parent ourselves, and um, you know, um, treat ourselves with like someone we respect, and so. That is something that comes, I think, for a lot of people on the method. And I think if I were to say, like, what's the number one thing that prevents people from seeing success on the method or at least delays it, um, it's that. It's the not wanting to let go of alcohol as that quick fix coping tool. Um, It's amazing when someone doesn't desire it as much, you know, the craving is fading away, but they see themselves like compulsory drinking just to kind of numb out. Um, there's not like one easy answer I would say, but I think for someone to be, you know, their own advocate to seek out the type of support they need and to be willing to try different coping tools, to be willing to be uncomfortable. And honestly, you can still turn to alcohol as a coping tool throughout this treatment, but it's just like, how can you turn to it less often? Or how can you, um, you know, instead of having a bottle line, how can you keep it to two or three glasses tonight? It's just these little micro changes of modifying how you're using alcohol um, as you continue on the treatment and then incorporate in other habits and coping tools as well.
0: Yeah, and I think that's that's huge, right? Because I see this with, again, like with my peoples is kind of like what you're saying. It is like one of the number one, if not the number one reasons that people stop it because they're like, no, I have i don't have this thing that works anymore. Right? We know the alcohol works. it It does the job for the anxiety, for the mood stuff, for the trauma symptoms that were coming up. But now that's gone. So, you know, that's the thing, you know, we we always try to treat, you know, that's one of the things that I try to at least do is treat all the other potential things that I can on my end to see like, hey, let's get that at least under control or at least be aware that these things are related. Um, but yeah, what, um, what are some potential risks, would you say? I know you talked about, and I think this is one of the misconceptions too, is kind of like that people can... Drink through it, right? This isn't a medicine that's going to stop you from getting drunk, right? It's one of the things they're like, oh, this is, you know, I can drink as much as I want to when I take this, and it won't have an effect. I was like, no, 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 the alcohol is still gonna, it's still gonna affect you, and it's still you're gonna get drunk if you drink, if you drink what you're gonna do. But what are some of the risks or benefits, and maybe some pros and cons, I guess, compared to maybe some other things that are out there?
1: Yeah, you know, um, I think the risks are. Well, like, you know, with with naltrexone, as you probably know, I mean, it's not a very risky medication. It's not like you can get addicted to naltrexone or that, you know, it's going to interfere with most other medications. It's my understanding and correct me if I'm wrong, but it only interferes with opiates. So like, you can't take it with opiates, but you know, it's, it's a pretty benign medication in most cases. Um, so there's not really risks on that front as far as I'm aware, but more so I think around people's expectations of like you were saying what the pill is going to do. It's like, oh, is this going to keep me from getting drunk? Or is this going to, you know, how is this going to impact my drinking? And people can still, like, sometimes I think people will say, oh, I like, I didn't realize that, you know, I could still get blackout drunk on this pill. And it's not going to block the intoxicating effects of alcohol whatsoever. Um, and so people might be relying exclusively on the pill to help them drink less. But, There's more to it than that. And so I think when people go into this, and this is part of getting like right support from a knowledgeable doctor, because I've had um, so many people over the years reach out to me and be like, oh, my doctor prescribed me to take it this way and, you know, it didn't work or this happened. And so if a doctor doesn't really know the best way to to take it for the patient, um, they can get incorrect instructions. Um, But I think, you know, realizing and something we are broken records with saying in our program and in general is like, naltrexone is a really powerful tool, but it's a tool. And we often say with the Sinclair method, naltrexone and TSM are 50% of it, crucial 50%. But the other 50% is how are you going to meet the medication halfway? Are you going to, you know, are you going to take your pill and take four shots of vodka right afterward? Or are you going to take your pill and have a meal and then sip on a glass of wine? You know, there's ways that we can kind of, um, be fighting the pill and there's ways that we can help the pill and you know what's great about this treatment I think is that it meets people where they're at like I was just talking to one of our members and she's like was feeling discouraged because she's like oh I like I have to start taking naltrexone like to deal with my morning drinking and that's kind of shameful but I'm like that's where you're at today like let's start where you are and we're going to progress forward and so it's not like people have to start this treatment and jump through hoops to make all these changes to their drinking it's like we often have them just start where they are and then over time as the medication continues to work make these gradual habit and lifestyle um changes but i think the biggest challenge is when people have unreasonable or unrealistic expectations for what the medication is going to do and sometimes that's what we have to learn through experience i know that was true for me but i often hear from others like oh you know i i realize i'm four months in and i realize i'm relying on the pill to do everything and so um that's a little bit about you know the risks with it but if someone if someone is committed to this treatment and they really do want to make this change and they're making those you know small habit changes each week and uh you know they're never going to skip a dose you know if they're just really uh, involved in their own treatment it's incredible the transformation people can see in less than a year's time.
0: Yeah, I think it's it makes huge differences. I think people notice like all the differences like health-wise, yeah. relationship-wise, occupational, all that stuff like all the benefits you know all the reasons that they came to me in the first place like those things get improved when it when it works for them
1: yeah one of the things i would often say uh when i or i i guess i realized this the longer i was on the treatment is that when we drink excessively it's such a ripple effect into our lives With work, relationships, health, like there's this negative impact in every area of our life. And the same is true even by just reducing, there's this positive ripple effect into all areas of our lives. And so, even if someone like your patient is still drinking, you know, eight drinks, but they're down from 20 something, they're gonna see some massive improvements in their life, even though they're still drinking a lot. Um, So, for people to realize that you don't have to be sober to see life improvements, like they can happen throughout, you know, your drink reduction journey
0: yeah a a step is you know like i always kind of use this analogy of like you can't just decide one day to run a marathon you have to kind Mm of work your way up there and you know do your mile then two miles three miles and kind of building it up from there so
1: yeah totally
0: there was you know comparing it with things like again aa and other stuff that's out there one of the criticisms i hear from people who come to me who have been like oh you know i did the aa thing and I don't like the whole God thing. And, you know, they, you know, we have this increasingly kind of non-religious, non kind of spiritual kind of society culture that's out there. Um, I think, you know, you've, you personally have kind of said like, Oh, God's still part of my life. Um, you know, does the Sinclair method take God out or does, you know, is this some of the stuff that's there, is there still room for God with this Sinclair method?
1: Yeah. And actually I didn't have, God in my life when I did TSM. Actually, he came into my life after that. So uh, one of the great things about TSM is that there's no religious prescription. And in fact, I think it draws a lot of like atheists or, you know, whatever people who don't believe in God or are questioning God. It brings a lot of those people because it's very logical, the treatment. It's science-based, it's evidence-based. They can look up scientific papers on it and read about it. And so um, God is not required or spiritual practice is not required as part of this journey but you know also it can totally be brought all brought along as part of the journey and in fact i think it can make it all the richer um in our program we have a a christian support group and a lot of our members will say this has been an answer to prayer and so for people who do, do believe in god um they're you know seeing this as an answer to prayer so that's one of the great things about it i think and like you said with aa people don't like that they have to believe in a higher power if that's not their thing or they don't like that they have to call themselves an alcoholic or you know say that they're powerless over alcohol there's all of these things that can be trigger points in aa and again never to knock it um but those are the pain points i see because i see a lot of people come to the sinclair method from aa um yeah, it's, this treatment's tailored to wherever someone is at on, on this journey, to be honest.
0: Yeah, and I think that's a huge thing is that, you know, that's one of the main criticisms we hear about AA, and again, like I, I'm also, I'm in agreement that if AA works for you, and I know plenty of people where are AA work for them, and I was like, I'm not gonna take that away from you. Right. You know, and if that's what you wanna be, if that's what you wanna do, and you feel like that's effective for you, by all means, please please do it, and if it does a job, great. But there's other stuff also that's out there that, you know, can meet you where you're at so yeah
1: yeah and it's something uh, people can adapt to where they're at too which is really nice um yeah yeah. sorry go ahead
0: no go um (laughs) what are some I know we kind of talked about like maybe some myths about it or what are some myths about the Sinclair method and and or like what do you want people to know about it that don't know about it that may have never heard about it before
1: yeah you know one of the really common myths I see is that people think, oh, well, you're just substituting alcohol for another drug where they think that people are using naltrexone in place of alcohol as like a another stimulant or intoxicant or something. Um, that is not true. Um, You know, an example of that would be is, oh, I'm going to quit drinking, so I'm going to start smoking marijuana instead. Like, that would be a substitute. But with naltrexone, you know, there's no high from naltrexone. It's non-addictive. It's like taking a Tylenol, in a sense. um, And that medicine is just working to, again, de-addict the brain from alcohol over time. So that is one common misconception. Another one is that I get a lot on TikTok is like, oh, like they'll say, oh, there's a seat waiting for you in AA, like an alcoholic can never drink normally again. And while, you know, I'm not going to say this treatment's going to work 100% of the time for 100% of the people, no, but it can work for a lot of people. And it works in a way that is completely different than AA and abstinence-based treatments, because the belief in those treatments are once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. You can never have one drink. It will turn into a binge. But with the Sinclair method, it makes moderate drinking a possibility, even for people who are on the severe spectrum of alcohol use disorder, because it fixes the brain issue. Um, so that's another misconception that just like this is a snake oil treatment that, you know, might be a temporary fix. But a lot of people who see success on this treatment, you know, that the success remains. It's like, you know, I started this treatment in 2017 and I still feel is cured. I know that's a touchy word. You can't use that, but I, I really do feel cured of my alcohol dependence. So, um, yeah, for, for people to really look into the, the science behind it and understand the basics of that, I think can help them understand. But there are a lot of people that, you know, just, uh, they've been told that, you know, alcohol use disorder recovery looks a certain way and it's hard for them to, fathom a different way to go about it that is really turning the traditional treatment system on its head.
0: Yeah. And for people who are like, like me, so people who are healthcare providers who may not be aware of the Sinclair method or who may have heard about it and are kind of like, ah, no, I still want people to just be abstinent. And here's your abuse and your camperel and go about your way. Like, what should we know? What, what do you wish that we knew
1: That's such a good question. Like, I'm humbled that you're even asking me that. Um, I think that abstinence seems like the logical choice and it seems like the safest idea. And that's what I've heard from doctors is like, well, abstinence is the safest. But what's not being considered in that is what's going on inside the patient when they are struggling with this problem. Like, it seems easy. Oh, yeah, just stop drinking. But if it were that easy, we wouldn't have as many people struggling with this, the millions of people in the U.S. alone that we have struggling with it. And so for the physician to understand that this is not a logical use disorder um, and it's something that can be dealt with and reversed, you know, through naltrexone treatment and and treatments like the Sinclair method. But um, I think when people are told to quit drinking, even when they sincerely want to get this issue behind them, a lot of people, like you said at the start of the call, and there's research to back this up, that the success rates of these abstinence-based programs are 10% or less. Um, so it's like a 90% failure rate. And what fascinates me is like, okay, if we've known that, I read a paper from the 70s that was saying that. Like, we've known this for a long time. And I'm like, why do we keep doing the same thing? And in fact, I was at an addiction conference and someone from the stage literally said, we all know treatment doesn't work. And I'm like, what are we doing here? Like This is crazy. So to um, to recognize that there needs to be alternative options that actually deal with the root issue of what's going on. And it's not as easy for people just to quit drinking. And I think if a physician hasn't gone through it themselves, um, you know, they it's hard for them to know. Um, and I know that, you know, especially people might go to their GP and ask for the prescription, but they're so busy already that if they don't know about naltrexone they're probably not going to take time to learn about it. Some of them will, but um, it's hard for them to know what to do. And so like, you know, you said with your training, they're told to just kind of send people to AA and things like that. But um, being open and curious about, you know, other treatments and and why so many of us are diehard advocates of the Sinclair method after, you know, nothing else worked.
0: Yeah, and I think that's also where what it comes from is that my own frustration with it from kind of like, again, the experiences we're seeing, again, this kind of hopelessness, this kind of like, futility in the whole kind of treatment and it's like we're, we're all wasting our time nobody's getting better no you know like from a doctor point of view i'm wasting my time because now i'm kind of perpetuating these kind of stereotypes of like oh the drunks and they're gonna come back and there's no hope for them and again like again we're feeding into all the the quote-unquotes that are there and you know and then from from the patient's point of view it's kind of like there's no hope for me right there's nothing that works and i've tried it and it doesn't work and there and then, once I came across this, and I was like, let's just try and see what happens with you know c- the first couple of patients. I was like, oh my god, this works, right? And for the first time, I was like, I need to be doing this with like all my patients, and that's how I kind of like really was like, let me just take a deeper drive into it and and run from there. And again, this has been the most successful thing, and it's it's still kind of astounding to me when I see that there's so much kind of pushback to it. And again, there it, it feeds back into that whole stigma of substance use as a whole, and throwing assigning kind of morality to it when again like there's so much bio- biological kind of data that's out there that says like it's not a moral thing right this is not a choice kind of thing there is an aspect there is like anything right it, like obesity whether it's smoking whether it's drinking it's like there's a biological basis for all of these things
1: Absolutely and and understanding that, like shifting the perspective from like you said, it's not a moral issue or a character defect or things like really getting to the root and fixing the the brain and what's going on neurologically in the brain to keep this compulsive, illogical behavior going with people who like we were talking about earlier successful in lives and have so much to live for and going for them and you know for me i i sincerely wanted to get this issue under control and it would cause me so much grief that i couldn't and i was feeling so defeated but sometimes people think oh they just don't want it bad enough and that's that's not true (laughs) that's not at all yeah. yeah so yeah
0: for people you know one of the things my patients, my early kind of patients would always ask me is like, is there a group or is there something, can we start a group for people who are going through this? And I was like, oh, you know, I've got like a handful. I've got some people. I don't know if we can do a group per se. Then like they're looking for the resources online, not really finding a whole lot of stuff. And then, you know, you guys came up with Thrive Alcohol Recovery, which I was like, Oh, thank God. <laughs> when I started looking, I was like, thank God. Now I can like tell all my patients, I was like, check this place out. Cause this, cause kind of like what we were saying, there isn't a lot of stuff online. There isn't a lot of, you know, you're going through Facebook groups or Reddit groups or things like that to, to like learn about it, but there isn't like this hub. So talk to us a little bit about how, how that kind of gets started and then about the whole program as a whole.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So um, Thrive Alcohol Recovery is really one place where anyone can go and get everything they need to be supported on the Sinclair Method. Um, And this really came about after my own frustration going through it and having that same issue like you described of not really knowing where to go for information or being in Facebook groups and getting conflicting advice and not really knowing what was accurate and just feeling like I was navigating this somewhat blind with a lot of unanswered questions and, you know, just wishing I could like, hey, like reach out to someone who has some authority and, you know, I could trust that would tell me what to do. So that was um where I started with TSM. And then I started kind of organically coaching people over the years, one-on-one and in group who would just kind of reach out because I was documenting my journey on YouTube. And then I was coaching people and realizing like, there wasn't a place to send them of like, okay, I want you to watch this video on habit change or how to get alcohol-free days on the Sinclair Method or, you know, all of these additional resources I wanted them to do as like homework between our coaching sessions. I didn't have that. And so that's where uh, Thrive came to be is really this like hub of comprehensive support for the Sinclair Method. It's private. It's all online. When people join, they have access forever as long as they need um, and it's really giving them everything they need from video courses. There's over 40 courses that really walk them through the treatment from day one until extinction. We have live group support happening, happening almost every single day. Uh, we have workshops um, diving into specific topics like mindful drinking and trauma and TSM. We have a trauma therapist who's um, hosting workshops for us. Um, they have access to coaches, so they can private message a coach at any time. And then there's just this incredible ju- judgment-free community of peers and they call each other thrivers and um, really our own private community and our own private platform where people can share and connect and um, get support from peers and coaches. So this was really honestly something I, I wanted to have when I was on the Sinclair Method, but it didn't exist. And then as, as, as I was a coach, i still kind of feeling that need. And so we created this a couple of years ago and um, it's been really incredible to see the feedback from our members about just the level of support they're getting there and how much they love to connect with another. And just like last night, I was hosting our Monday group call and a woman's like, yeah, you know, my husband's being supportive, but he just doesn't get it. Like, I love that I can come and talk with you guys in real time of people who just like get what I'm going through. And so, um, yeah, that that's what Thrive is all about, really to support people through the Sinclair method for, you know, as long as they need and really offer that day-to-day uh, trusted guidance.
0: Yeah. And how how many people or how many members do you have about, do you know, or?
1: I think we have like 350 or something right now about, mm-hmm. and it's always um, growing. We launched it officially about a year and a half ago. Um, and like each week on our calls, we have, you know, anywhere from 20 to 30 people, down to like two to three depending on holidays or the weeks but i honestly love uh both because when it's a really small group we can really connect with each other and then when it's a larger group um you really hear from like the diverse types of experiences um and people that we have uh in there yeah
0: yeah i've had like a couple of my patients who are signed up through there and they like love it um you know the feedback has been like really great from them to just be like the community has been fantastic Um, the support's been fantastic. A lot of the tools in the courses are fantastic. You know, I'm not going to name some of the other courses or stuff that they've may have tried before, but they were like, this has been much better for them. Um, so I was like, yes, I was like, this is exactly what I wanted to have like a couple of years ago. So I'm glad that you guys were, you know, (laughs) you went out and you did it right. That you went out and you made the thing that you, that we all kind of needed. So.
1: Yeah. I'm so happy to hear that. And like, you know, we, the, my co-founder, we're both Sinclair Method Success Stories, and she has a history of working in the traditional treatment world, so her perspective is really interesting. Um, And then almost all of the coaches, except for one, um, have personal experience with the Sinclair Methods, so it's just really awesome to have that personal experience and then coaching expertise as well. So it's, um, yeah, it's, I, I love the program it's turned into, like we continue to improve it and add resources and things, but My number one goal is just to hear that positive feedback from members. And we get that feedback like daily and just organically from people, which means so much to know that we are supporting them through such a, you know, difficult and vulnerable time in their life. And they can feel like supported and not shamed, you know, or uh, judged for for where they're at.
0: No, definitely. I think you guys have succeeded on, on that level as well. So what is your kind of wrapping up a little bit I want to make sure we're all respective of everybody's time but what are some of your own kind of self-care some things that you've done that you've kind of developed for yourself you know through this whole process and then just for yourself
1: yeah um so many things you know I just made a video on YouTube yesterday talking about some of this actually and one of the biggest insights I had through the Sinclair method was that I really didn't have self-respect because of how destructive alcohol was to my mental health and emotional health and so i would not treat myself with kindness and respect and it was something i had to learn over time because i was in such automatic self-destruct mode and so i remember for a period of time just like pretending i was someone else like okay how would i treat my mom in this situation or my sister And really learning to talk to myself and and treat myself like someone I respected. So that was a really big mindset shift that then led me to really do things that were kind for myself. You know, just um, taking five minutes throughout the day just to check in with myself and see how I'm doing or take myself to get a massage or exercise or all of these simple little things that can feel really good for an individual. But I found that you know, I had to first start with how I was thinking about myself and talking with myself because I was just, even on TSM after a few months, I was like still self-destructing and drinking through the medicine. I'm like, why am I doing this? And that's when I started seeing a therapist to try to kind of break uh, through some of these things. Um, but I think that's a big part of it. And also just, I was a daily drinker for nearly 10 years. And so alcohol had really become my purpose in life and I didn't really have anything else going on to be honest like alcohol was front and center and so finding things that were meaningful and purposeful in life it's a continual process but I remember reading the book by Viktor Frankl *Man's search for meaning and that was really eye-opening for me about how important it is to feel like you have meaning and purpose in life and how when we experience um, addiction or alcohol use disorder it can really numb us from that and take that away from us so to be really hungry to find your own purpose and, and meaning in life just speaking to your audience because I believe we all do have things that we're here to do and if we're not plugged into that uh, can feel really futile to to even be living day-to-day life
0: yeah yeah what is your I don't know, like I'll give like my little take-home message I guess because like this I always like is one of my most things I'm like passionate about is that like with, you know, given talks on like substances and all that stuff in the community, and you know, opioids get the attention. You know, fentanyl gets the attention. Benzos, Xanaxes, all this stuff gets the attention. And when we actually like look at the numbers, right, and we stack up the impact of all the substances and what they have on like, at least in America, alcohol is far and away number one and it's like you can take everything else you can combine them and still alcohol is like number one by a mile just because of access and how much part of society it is so when I came across this I was like, oh my god we have an answer right and this this helps right and we can really help these people who are struggling kind of in silence but what is your kind of like take-home message from from this conversation and then from like TSM and some of your own experiences I guess?
1: Yeah. um, I think for people to realize that it's, it's up to the individual, it's up to each person to realize if they're in a relationship with alcohol that is not suitable for what they want in their lives. Sometimes people reach out to me and say, oh, is my drinking bad enough for this method or is my drinking too bad for this method? And, you know, what's great about this treatment is that anyone can start it at any point in their drinking. I have worked with college kids who develop binge drinking patterns while at college and on their summer break, they started on TSM and went back to school, still had the option to drink, but could do it with naltrexone. And then I worked with people who have been daily drinkers for 40 years and they're finally wanting to get this issue, you know, under control or finding that there's an alternative treatment out there for them. So, I think for people to realize that, you know, there is such a stigma around heavy drinking and what it means, but that's kind of our old way of treating it. Like I like to view heavy alcohol use as like someone who wants to lose 20 pounds. It's like, yeah, maybe you haven't had the best eating habits the past couple years and you haven't been exercising, but hey, we can fix that and it might take some time, but like don't beat yourself up. Let's just start where you're at. Um, So for people to realize like they don't have to call themselves an alcoholic, they don't have to, you know put this label or stigma on themselves they can address the issue at any point um, and the medication treatment and TSM can help them kind of get to a place where they feel satisfied with their drinking and again it's only up to the individual to say you know whether they're unhappy with their relationship with alcohol
0: yeah it's not a problem until it becomes a problem right yeah. and you know a lot of times it's like if those person if that person's like asking that question is it a problem probably a problem right if you're, if you're questioning it you're probably there so yeah well thank you katie so much what are, what are some ways that people can connect with you and follow along and if they want to kind of check out thrive what are some ways to kind of do that
1: yeah you know um we're super active on various social media channels on youtube and tiktok and instagram and twitter even um if they visit our website though thrivealcoholrecovery.com um, all of our social media handles are linked at the bottom of the site, or they can do a Google search and usually will come up. But we're always putting out success stories and tips and information. So if they just kind of want to you know, start the process of educating themselves more about it, you know, follow us on one of our social channels and you can learn a lot that way.
0: All right. What we will do. We'll drop all the links and all that stuff in our descriptions, and we'll have people uh, checking it out. Thank you again so much for your time.
1: Thank you so much, someone I love this conversation.
0: Thank you.